Bismillah, walhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala wa ba'd. The Prophet, peace be upon him, has said, Whoever treads a path in search of knowledge, Allah eases the path of Jannah for them. We welcome you all to the fourth episode of Salikcast, where we ask Allah to make us all from those who tread the path of knowledge, and thus the path of Jannah is made easy for us. To proceed, in this episode, we will be talking with Brother Chris Phoenix with the head of the new Muslim circle here in Calgary and asking him about his personal journey seeking not, uh, his personal journey coming to Islam and helping new Muslims remain steadfast. Brother Chris, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thanks for having me um, present with you today. I appreciate it, mashallah. Yeah, thanks a lot for uh, accepting the invitation. So uh, to start off, Brother Chris, um, how would you, I think it's best to approach this by going from the earlier stages of your life to perhaps how you came across Islam and perhaps some of the um, etiquettes as well regarding dealing with reverts on, on some of these topics. So as, as a young Canadian, I'm assuming you were born in Canada, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Born and so, raised, yes. So as a young Canadian, how was your life? Um, how was the environment like? Uh, great. I mean, I lived in Calgary all my life, except for a couple of years in my youth. Um, I was born at the Holy Cross Hospital um, in downtown Calgary, which is no longer a hospital. It's more of a medical center now. Um, so that's in the Mission, you know, Cliff Bungalow area. Um, and then uh, grew up in parts of downtown Calgary in my first part of my life. Um, and then did grade one to grade five uh, in Pine Ridge um, at Pine Ridge uh, Community School, the public school there. Um, and then in my grade six and seven year was a little bit of an adventure. Um, we moved off to northern Saskatchewan for my grade six year. Um, so I was in a town called La Ronge, Saskatchewan. Uh, that was a predominantly First Nations um, town, of course, uh, mainly Woodlands Cree people. And I uh, had to learn a little bit of Cree when I was in school there. Instead of French, you know, they kept Cree as a second language there. So at least I can say hello, like Tanse. And 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 speaking of which, I mean, here I am, here we are. Uh, and I just want to take a moment to acknowledge that we are living, working, playing, and thriving on the land of the Blackfoot people, the Treaty 7 people. And I just want to acknowledge that because um, those are the original people, inhabitants of this land, and we have a duty um you know prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam always uh you know commanded us to be upholding of our treaties so we as people in this land we need to be also upholding the treaties that are written between the crown of canada which is i mean yes those treaties are about a hundred and some odd years old um but we need to uphold those treaties between us and the First Nations people of whatever land we live in, especially if it's in Canada related to the crown. So a little bit of a sidestep there, but it is a, a, a necessary one that we should always address. Um, and then from my time in northern Saskatchewan, uh, we then moved to um, South Delta, BC, which is just a, a community south of Vancouver and Richmond called Tawasson. I live there for uh, a year. My uh, 
and then we moved back to Calgary in uh, the year 1996. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my life has been in Calgary since 96 ever since. Um, I'd say, you know, when it comes to the whole cultural paradigm and religious paradigm, culturally Christian, you know, not necessarily um, an adherent Christian or being taken to church on a regular basis. Yes, I had family members and friends that would take me to church here and there. Um, however, it was not a formalized thing in my life. And then from there, when my parents uh, divorced um, in 96, um, I was with my mom. My mom was on a bit of a spiritual journey for herself where she was getting herself uh, knowledgeable and involved in a lot of what would be new age, we would call new age spirituality. Um, you know, still doing everything, Christmas, Halloween, Easter, those kinds of things, but then adding on all this new age flavor. <laughs> and then in my early 20s, that new age stuff kind of morphed into some other kinds of, there's this kind of interesting California-based I'd say new age philosophy called religious science, not to be confused with Scientology, but honestly I could say it was like watered down Buddhism for white people. This is the way it was. And then <laughs> that would led me into my mid twenties. Right. Um, by then I was attending the university of Calgary in 2007 and starting a degree in communications. And um, from there, I was on a, I was seeking, you know what I mean? I'm like, I've had this life of spiritual, but not religious. The old S, the old SBNR acronym. And um, from there, uh, you know, I was in the hunt for a place to belong spiritually and religiously. And I thought that was possibly going to be Vajrayana Buddhism, which is a type of Buddhism, the, the Buddhism that the Dalai Lama, um, from uh, Tibet uh, practices. But as I was studying more and more about it, I realized it was still kind of a, a religion that was stuck in forms of animism, which is like a pagan form of religion that has aspects uh, related to animals. Um, so it was like a morphed Buddhism, right? And um, something that just didn't vibe well with me because, again, it was also kind of, it seemed kind of ethnically exclusive. And then from there, while I was at university, uh, in that kind of thought process and modality, I was like, going, huh, like, I want to be a part of the free Tibet, you know, sovereignty movement. Is there a club on the University of Calgary campus? Well, there wasn't. But instead, there was actually a club called PCSS, Palestinian Canadian uh, Student Society. So I, even in my youth, had seen especially the second intifada happen over the news, right? And I'd always kind of had a heart for the Palestinian cause and always thought, man, this is a messed up power dynamic and seeing how the Palestinians were mistreated um, for years and years and years. And so anyway, then instead of, since there was no alternative, I'm like, well, I'm going to get involved with some activism. I got involved with PCSS. And so happened to be that one of the members of PCSS was also a classmate of mine in my coursework. Uh, and 
So through meeting uh, these folks who were mainly Muslim, I met more Muslims while at university. And oddly enough, Islam never really um, had any kind of, it never orbited my mind. <laughs> you know, when I was growing up, didn't know about it, didn't care. Oh, that's just Arabs. Uh, you know, it just didn't care. Like, it didn't matter. Even 9-11 didn't phase me much. I didn't, you know, come out of 9-11 thinking, uh, you know, Muslims. I was, I, I was indifferent to it at, at any rate. So anyway, there I was in an activist group at university, and I was meeting Muslims, but also my heart was seeking a spiritual and religious home. So in a period of about 18 months, no, pardon me, 15 months, you know, I started investigating more about Islam and asking my colleagues and classmates who were Muslim questions. And as I asked them questions, I learned more about the religion. I saw some of them, you know, had great character, adab, akhlaq, as we say. And from there, that kind of sparked an inspiration to learn more, do more. And so in the year of 2008, I fasted a bit of Ramadan. I started to, uh, I started to learn how to pray because I was curious about how that happened and how that worked, the mechanics of it. And then also I started attending Friday prayer. So then by February 2009, um, after completing a meeting with my, my activist friends, who also had Muslims in the crowd, I said uh, to them, I said, well, I guess uh, it's the time I feel comfortable with it. Um, I said to my friend Anis, who was there, I said, Anis, would you be so kind to uh, deliver the Shahada to me? And there I was in front of a, a select group of people that I felt comfortable with. And I did my Shahada publicly on February 8th, 2009. And then from there, I've been a Muslim ever since. So that's kind of the, the walk <laughs> towards the long walk towards Islam. But, uh, you know, uh, it's funny how, you know, I look back at things and I really see how my fitra was not affected or impacted heavily by any kind of religious or cultural paradigm. Um, I remember quickly, like, uh, I was taken to a, a Bible camp while I was a youngster, like probably 10 or 11 or something. And I had lots of fun there. But I remember them telling me and asking me the, uh, at the camp, hey, Christopher, how come you won't accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And, and at that point, I was a young kid too, like, you know, just like grade four, five, something like that. And I said, I don't get it. I don't know how he can be God and son of God at the same time. So I was already kind of like the Trinitarian kind of paradigm was, <laughs> was not, you know, uh, was not sinking in. So in many ways, I feel blessed that, you know, uh, I was not, you know, I was not overturned too much in my youth. Mm. Yeah. And would you say um, there was any like individual or individuals who sort of um, told you to accept Islam or sort of answered your questions or was it more your own discovery? Well, no, there was so there was definitely people who answered questions about Islam. Like I could name a few of them. Um, 
I remember, you know, currently uh, one of them is a current candidate for council uh, in the Calgary city election. One of them, we used to chat, you know, every so often. Um, other other friends have moved and gone on where they, you know, one friend, he showed me how to do wudu. Um, other friends, you know, helped me with recitation of the prayer, just the basics of al-fatiha. Um, and they, but then also I just, in and on a basic level, going to Friday prayers. I also took religious studies uh, 201 at U of C, which helped out kind of like learn Islam from a point of view of non non-belief, not from a theological background, but it still fulfilled, you know, some requisite basic knowledge. And then, you know, I had also, I had started at that point also taking some Arabic too. And so some of those Arabic teachers were Muslims as well. So just asking questions. So it was learning by observation, good character of, of good people, and also learning and seeing how other people who are Muslim, but didn't have such good character and how that was antithetical to Islam. Um, and then, you know, just basic topics and understanding the faith and then, you know, getting set up with the opportunity to go to Al Maghrib courses here and there. Um, yeah, that's kind of, that was like the very first year I would say. Right. And, um, would you say, because I've heard this sentiment being uh, reiterated before, I'm not sure what your take on it is, and that's um, some people, they become, Muslim, they become Muslim without meeting Muslims before. And some of them later on, they go to say, had we met Muslims before learning about Islam, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have accepted Islam. That's Do you right. think that, that sentiment's true? That's true, because what, what people are seeing is the beauty of Islam, right? Because... Practically, people are going to people. So when we meet people in our day-to-day -day lives, if someone's Muslim, this or that, we don't know if they're going to be of good quality until we really get to know them and start having interactions with them, right? So some people definitely, you could go, man, I was mistreated by this Muslim and that Muslim that makes me not want to be a Muslim. And I have had those kinds of feelings before too, out of frustration. Um, a few, like some years later um, in my life, when I saw behaviors that were just uh, a ghastly and abhorrent, uh, that I could not stand, and I knew that they were un-Islamic behaviors, but then I had to step back and go, hold, hold your hold it, Chris, like at the end of the day, these are just people making mistakes and I can't necessarily use the mistaken people as my example. I can use them as an example and go, okay, don't go that, don't go that direction, go the other direction and follow what is provided for you from the Quran, from the Sunnah, you know, and, 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 and go with it, go from there. Yeah, absolutely. Cause right now I'm, I'm on, well, I'm also like, you know, helping people. I've been on a new platform called Clubhouse and Clubhouse has people doing shahadas after they actually, they've learned a bit about Islam and then they come and meet Muslims and stuff in Clubhouse uh, and they learn a little more there. But that doesn't fulfill the whole idea of 
there are people who definitely learn Islam kind of almost in a vacuum away from Muslims. It's not entirely impossible. Um, like, I think at some point with our communication technologies, those people who have less exposure to Muslims do find some Muslims to talk to, whether it be through YouTube channels like the EF Dawah type people or there's the Speaker's Corner type folks or they're reaching out through Clubhouse or, or something like that. Um, that's where they're finding it because there are some, like there's one guy that I know who's from Alaska who just embraced Islam just recently. And, you know, he came onto Clubhouse to kind of meet some more Muslims and kind of help him with his growth. And would you say uh, yourself personally, was it more the belief side, the intellectual side, which, um, uh, which made you want to accept Islam or more there was a deep yearning, like uh, you felt there was something missing, uh, perhaps like more on the spiritual side. Yeah. It's it, for me is a deep learn yearning. I think that's, and I think to be honest, some people will maybe say there's an intellectual component. And I honestly find that while there's aspects of the intellect and the rationalization of Islam that um, make you, click in as it were with your mind it's really a lot of stuff in the heart you just feel it it's like the feeling of being being in love you, you know when you know and so that's kind of the thing it's like it's so mysterious your heart is open you feel the goodness of it you, and it just you're resonating with it and And again, that depends on what you have built up in your life because there are people who have lives that are heavily influenced. There are Muslim converts that come to Islam from a life of heavy Christianity and they have a different type of unpacking and, and, and learning and relearning to do as opposed to somebody who comes to Islam from an atheist background, as opposed to somebody who comes to Islam from Uh, an SBNR background like I did, you know, uh, we all have different packages and paths into Islam. Some people come to Islam because of romance and love because they're in love with a Muslim. Other people come to Islam because they heard some lyrics in a song. Other people come to Islam because of that authentic yearning to be connected with their creator in more than just words but in a way of practice that actually refines one's soul would you say that there was one thing or one point which made you finally say that islam is true or would you say it's more of a gradual climbing of a mountain kind of thing? it was gradual and that's the beauty of islam because in and of itself it's a it's a religion that supports the idea of gradualism Because when, when you look at the Sirah and how Islam was delivered to the, pro, to the Sahaba, you know, there were things like, you know, there, heavy drinking was normative uh, at the time. And then eventually the, 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 the ayah to say, do not approach the prayer while intoxicated came, right? So, I mean, drinking was still permissible, but hey, hey, when you do your salah, you can't. You can't be in this state of mind. 
And then when they finally migrated to Medina, finally the, the you know, the seal on the, on the envelope, so to speak, saying, okay, this is it. We're done with alcohol. And that allowed people to graduate themselves out of a behavior. And I think, honestly, the most holistic embraces of Islam are ones where people do take that gradualism approach. Yes, there may be thing, something that is totally rational about the religion that just lines up with the person's intellect very well. However, you know, taking it step by step and, and giving time for learning, you know, allows a, a fruitful development of, of a love for the religion and a love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then eventually adding in love for the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I've heard, I'm sure you've also heard that it's better to take the shahada as soon as possible. Yes, I know that there are people kind of do that and, and, and I, I, I respect the, the push for that, but I'm not, a, I'm not in favor of that. Because when somebody is truly not prepared for the shahada, they generally don't have the adequate supports also built up around them to help them maintain their iman going forward. I, when people do a rushed shahada, often <laughs> I see them bouncing out of Islam much quicker. Whereas somebody who actually says, no, 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 let me just uh, pump the brakes. Yes. And I get it. You know, and I tell these people who are taking it a little slow, I'm like, yes, don't take it slow, but don't take it too slow. Because when you're too slow, that's the, that's the aspect of shaitan working on your nafs, wanting to produce doubt so that you don't take that final step. And I was one of those people. But the thing is also, I wanted to create an environment when I did my shahada, I did it in front of the people who were authentically there for me. Some converts are hauled up in front of people at a masjid that they don't even know. They, get, they do their shahada. And then they get all the hugs and love and then the phone numbers fly in and then, but there's still no contact a week later. That's a problem. And that's what breaks people's hearts. That's when this rushed mentality is not helpful. And that's why I would say, you know, put our imams are equipped to deliver the shahada but they're not always equipped because the masajid around them is not necessarily equipped to actually have people step in and serve that convert properly for the first year or two. Uh, could you describe like an effective support system? What does that entail? Does that entail their family being on board, for example, having a few strong friends, having a mission nearby? It can. And it has to have a masjid that also understands you know, cultural competencies, you know, um, a masjid that also understands knowing when to refer somebody maybe for mental health support. Um, because sometimes there are people that embrace Islam that have also um, some mental health issues, not severe ones, but sometimes there are severe ones there too. Uh, but, you know, sometimes somebody's got something going on that they need 
the, they sometimes people come to Islam and they think Islam again Islam as a is a complete religion, and you, you don't get me wrong, but the thing is there's also certain levels of dunya based knowledge like medicine and psychology that need to be employed in somebody's life in order for their life to be healthy. So uh, a good a good support system, you know, is ho is you're hoping for that you do have a supportive non-Muslim family, but that's not always the case, right? Especially if somebody's a young convert and they're still living at home with their parents and then they all of a sudden, hey, guess what, mom, dad, I've done this. And then it's like, Ooh. you know, but then there are people, I've heard of it. I mean, there was a 16-year-old Shahada in 2020, but her parents were supportive. Other guys, yeah, I think it just cut off for a second. There, no you're mentioning there was a 16 year old in 2020, but her yeah, there was a 16 year old Shahada in 2020, and her parents were supportive, which is great, you know. Um, and you know, again, Misajid, and this is not to speak specifically about just say our city, Calgary, but in general, like a template would be that you have a Misajid that provides you know, regular help to a new Muslim once in a while when they can, when they really need it. And if a misajid can't handle that, that may need to, may need to be farmed out to a third party person who, who, or third party group that knows the processes and can actually, um, you know, step in on that matter in a way that still helps you know, because sometimes our, imam, our imams' bottom line are stretched thin, right? And so we need some sort of, you know, some sort of people in the community that can help out with that kind of thing. Um, whether that is youth who are also, you know, reviving their Islam as well. Because like a, a Muslim who was born Muslim and then kind of steps away from it a little or is a little bit lax laxy laxadaisical and then they're all of a sudden they're in a process of revival they have a lot in common with a convert and if you pair them together their religiosities are almost at the same level and they can actually explore and learn at the same time in parallel and and almost learn the same things and 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 kind of su co-support each other but then also you got to have age appropriate support like i'm not necessarily going to want to throw a a 20 year old in to help a 40 year old convert and vice versa. You have to also, you need to have the generational compatibilities as well. And also gender compatibilities. I'm not necessarily going to be uh, going, Oh, you know, this gentleman is going to help this lady. There are times when sometimes there are, you know, the necessity is there, but the thing is you try to find also like, you know, this is a good sister to help that sister. And that's a good brother to, to help that brother. So I, I think this would be a good point to ask, uh, a good point in time to ask. So what exactly does the new Muslim circle do? And when was it founded? What sorts of supports do you offer? So it was founded in 2013. And it started from um, a brother who was uh, in Calgary. And he was involved in a lot of dawah. And 
his name was Ahmed, and he uh, he was running a book study group. Like so, at that time, he was gathering some brothers together, some convert brothers to, together to read the biography of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And that particular book they were studying was Martin Ling's, the Martin Ling's biography about Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And then so that brother, <clears throat> he then approached me to see if I could help. And we all, we all went over to a friend's home for a meal. And we all kind of, we sitting down with, and said, like, do you guys want to formalize something? Do you guys want to set up an actual, you know, group that is called something that we can call people to, to help them out? And it kind of started from there in the fall of 2013. And then also, um, we then added on a sister who was active in the community at the time. Um, but she has since uh, moved away from Calgary for, the, for quite a while. So over the years, we've held meetings where we meet up, you know, either weekly or biweekly. And we discuss topics that are relevant to us, um, where we've um, gathered and gone snowshoeing maybe had campfires where we've had Eid gatherings um, for, for converts and their families and their supporters. Um, we hand out book bags uh, when somebody has a Shahada. So, um, you know, about four or five good, good well-resourced books so that the person has like, a, you know, some sound knowledge to read upon. Um, as they embrace and even for somebody who's born Muslim that is reviving I'm happy to give a bag like that um, to them so that they have something that's maybe speaks to them in their 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 mother tongue of English rather than trying to access classical works um, because sometimes that can be make the whole process of uh, reviving yourself a little more elusive um, I hand out shahada certificates if somebody wants them so if somebody does a shahada and they didn't do it with me necessarily, but say for instance, they did shahada at some point, we just get one of the imams in the in Calgary involved, and we just you know create a backdated shahada uh, certificate because maybe they're going to go on umrah or maybe they're going to get married overseas, right? Or maybe they just want one. Um, I provide. I haven't done it yet, but I will provide and I do offer it um, kind of Islam 101 for non-Muslims to help them kind of just get a baseline understanding about Islam so that they're, so that we challenge a bit of the Islamophobia. And I, and I make use of my, my whiteness, my Europeanness to be of cultural compatibility with some of those kinds of folks because often you know, unconsciously they are discounting learning from other people because of the, 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 the heinous ideas of, you know, uh, bigotry and ethnocentric kind of behavior. Right. So we kind of, and, and it's, and then this is also prophetic, right? You know, every prophet was sent to their people in, you know, to speak in their tongue. So the thing is, it's like, pro, you know, they they go with their they they serve and talk to their people so we can we have the ability to emulate that in nowadays when we do dawah right 
So I'm better off talking to European people because I'm of European heritage. It doesn't mean that non-European people can talk to other people and do dawah. By no means, no. But we have to accept the fact that, you know, there's a little bit of an in because then they look at me and they go, oh, yeah, Chris has been living Muslim and he ain't that weird. Right? It kind of pulls back the curtain for them and it makes them feel safe. Um, and then the final thing is I will personally also offer myself as a wali to um, converts, sisters. Um, so if they don't have a suitable gentleman in their life, and usually they don't, um, being that I'm also a married man, um, and I've been married for almost 10 years, uh, and I do have two daughters as well that are young, um, I will offer myself as a wali for a convert sister because um, often uh, the convert sister can get caught up in the romance um, and the swooning that can come from another guy. And we we'll want to make sure that, um, you know, that things are being done on the up and up. You mentioned a bit about the language barrier between mm -hmm. uh, the people in this country and the Quran and Sunnah as they originally are. Mm -hmm. So, what is the what is the best way to what is the best way to overcome that? I would say, just like for instance, like like you guys are great examples of people who who are, I would say are perfectly capable of doing dawah to everybody in Canadian society as well. The, having having the language so that you can correctly articulate and 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 talk to people and just talk to them and and also and not just talk to them but have great listening skills sometimes people when we when we're i would like i feel uncomfortable talking to somebody who wants to know more about islam but maybe spanish is their prime language or french is and they'll be like, you know what, let me find somebody else who can actually talk to you in that language to help it really ring true. Because the thing is, it's like that mother tongue issue really does help. It really helps. Like I wouldn't, there's the, there's like a certain level that I could go and be, you know, being that basic Muslim and just talking straight about what's going on and here's what Islam is and this is what we do as Muslims, blah, blah, blah. But then when we start getting into like more like nitty gritty, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be so foolish to go, you know what, I, you know what, man, I got this, no problem. Because I do worry about that language barrier and that cultural competency. I, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know what, you know, Latin American Muslim uh, or people who are interested as well, so I'm going to maybe put them on to somebody who ha is from a Muslim that has Latin American heritage, or somebody that is French. I'm better off with like Anglo-Saxon English-speaking people, you know. That's who would I'd, I'd probably do better with if, if if it came down to having a dialogue or dawa with, you know. I don't know. It's just it's that, and and be, they, I look I look like them. So then th their guard is down. You know, psychologically, it seems so dumb, but there are people that their guard is up because when they see difference, they are, 
they're prepared for, you know, for fight or flight. Right. And, uh, you know, when you can come at them from a, uh, an angle of cultural competency, it's kind of no different than Prophet Muhammad wasallam, when he would dress and, and, and prepare himself to approach and talk to other tribes in Arabia about Islam, right? It's having that kind of understanding of orf, uh, cultural competency with people so that you can actually have an edge into the conversation rather than being, um, again, looked at as an outsider. You also mentioned that you give book back. So what books do you usually suggest for new Muslims? So the books that uh, we give out in this bag is, um, I'm going to sneeze maybe, just give me a sec. Mm -mm. No, could happen. Here we go. No. Okay, so the first book, there's a book called Being Muslim, A Practical Guide, written by um, a brother who is also a medical doctor. His name is Asad Tarsin. He's um, in the Bay Area of America. So A-S-A-D-A. A-S-A-D. A-S-A-D. Asad. Tarsin. T-A-R-S-I-N. Uh, so it's a basic Fardal Ayn book. You know, <coughs> Fardal Ayn being your basic um, expectations as a Muslim. Um, it also delves into the Hadith Jibreel when uh, Jibreel alayhi salam visited Prophet Muhammad and the gathering of the Sahaba and they discussed exactly what Islam is, Islam, Iman, and then also touching on the concept of Ishan and those being dimensions of Islam. The book also touches in into some ideas and concepts about spiritual diseases of the heart which I often find is missing from a lot of converts knowledge building because they're just busy again, jumping into the whole processes of prayer and what have you, but then they haven't looked into some of the spiritual diseases they may still be carrying within themselves, even after they do a Shahada. So again, the book is called being Muslim, a practical guide written by Asad Tarsin, his brother, um, his first name escapes me now, was a chaplain at the U of T, uh, but his brother is now uh, working at a Muslim community um, called Maqasid in Pennsylvania uh, and, and working alongside with uh, Sheikh Yahya Rodis and Sheikh Yahya or John, is, and his real name is John. Uh, he... Uh, he was, he's a convert from originally from California, and he went off and studied. Um, just to show some kind of connections to that. Then also, uh, I'm really always happy to give a copy of the Sahih International uh, English Translation Quran or the Clear Quran, uh, uh, you know, translated by Dr. Mustafa Khattab, uh, or the uh, Oxford University Press. Um, translation by done by M.A.S. Abdul Halim. Uh, those ones being the most modern English and the best accurate translations in English, I would say. Uh, then I also give a little slim book um, called The Life of uh, Pocket Guide or The Life of Prophet Muhammad, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So it's a really slim, brief sirah, just kind of gives the Coles notes so that it gives the people a primer 
um, because of course there's the Kurehad Riyadh Salihin and you know the Martin Ling's book and you know all these other kinds of books that you know people can jump into but more at more advanced stages and then also i give a book uh hisnul muslim the fortress of the muslim uh with all the basic kind of daily functional dua that is needed uh for a muslim's life and then you know we'll put in there um a, a, a prayer mat too and stuff like that and uh, so uh, brother chris what are there any steps you would recommend for new Muslims to take? For example, would you recommend they go to Umrah, to go to a Muslim country, perhaps experience the Adhan, a Muslim environment, um, and any any things that will help them uh, have a that happens for people when they do. T- um, I think jumping over to a Muslim country is interesting, but it's not necessarily needed. Um, you know, sadly, I've heard of people uh, in other Muslim communities in Canada where there was one guy who still had a problem with drinking and the community raised enough money for him. Like he did his shahada, but he's, they really didn't realize he still had a drinking problem. And then they, they even got him a, a whole hajj package and they sent him on hajj. Right, mashallah. But then even after hajj, Things deteriorated for his iman and his alcoholism, and he's no longer a Muslim. So it's kind of like I would say follow the follow the path of how the how the ibadah works. You know, first you got your shahada, then the prayer. You know, then there's getting through the fasting, the saum, right? And then you know, and then the whole processes of zakat and hajj are kind of things you can deal with them at you know, as needed because maybe uh, the new Muslim may not have enough money to qualify to be paying anything r- regarding related to the Nisab and uh, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and then also Hajj, I would honestly, I'd say, you know, Hajj is awesome. I haven't been on Hajj myself. I've been on Umrah, but I didn't go on Umrah until I had been Muslim for, Ooh, Seven years. Seven, eight years. So the thing is, it's like, I have been to Muslim countries. I've been to Morocco before, like when I was Muslim in, in, you know, in 2010 and 2016. Um, But that, you know, I I would say like, you know, rushing to go to a Muslim country. Sure. Some people can, that maybe works for them in their personal journeys, but it's not necessarily needed. What, what's needed is just, again, trying to find out people who really have truly core competencies in dealing with, you know, your, a person's basics and knowledge. Uh, and then also being able to know that the people that you are working with in embracing Islam. So if somebody's, my, my advice to a new Muslim is to take it easy, take it slow, because if you rush, you know, without any consultation, you're going to end up in a problem. And one of the problems that also arises is that there's a lot of women that embrace Islam. And there's a lot of women that when they embrace Islam, they're also uh, embracing a marriage to a Muslim person right away. And then often I've seen those marriages get really rocky and sometimes they end up in divorce. And then there's kids involved and by a certain point and 
and it's and it's it's literal hell. It's literal hell. It's it's awful. So I really recommend that when it comes to new Muslims too, you know, if you're not married, don't get married until you've been a Muslim for at least one to three years and you've learned enough about the religion and you've solidified your new identity and you've made enough connections to be fully supported so that you can go forward. Because if you, if you're just Russian, you're going to, uh, the, the trips and the pitfalls will be huge. And I mean, some people may say that, well, that means that Islam is not an authentic enough religion and whatever. No, no, it's an authentic religion. It's just that our humanness gets in the way. And when our humanness gets in the way, that's what trips us up. We have to be logical and methodical about how we are doing or dealing with our embrace. So on that point, do you think um, like born Muslims are less likely if they have a low point to start questioning their faith and, and leaving the faith entirely because they also have the cultural connection as opposed to revert Muslims who it's easy for them to go back to their old ways, their old life? And if so, do you think we can flip we can flip it and say as well, reverts are more likely to be sincere people. There's they're less likely to be hypocrites, more likely to be like hypocrites as in <coughs> saying something just to please other people and, and so on. So what advantages would you say born Muslims have and what advantages would you say revert Muslims have in that regard? I think we both are have the same levels of advantages and disadvantages. It's just that they come at us differently. Like, yeah, you, I think you're some right about you're somewhat right about the sincerity aspect. When somebody is truly seeking Islam, um, you know, we definitely look at Islam from a culturally unbiased lens. But the other pitfall is is that some people do look at Islam when they embrace it <coughs> from a from a cultural lens. They'll be like, they'll get into a process with as they embrace Islam. They start Arabizing themselves or they'll start, um, you know, becoming more, you know, South Asian subcontinent in their character or African. And this is mainly to people who are not of, you know, West Asian or, um, or African cultures, because what they're doing is they're not realizing like, oh, oh, hang on. Like if you're of European heritage, it's like, okay, guess what? You can still be you know, yourself, you're just abandoning the things that are fundamentally disallowed in Islam and, and that you have some leeway to gradually get there. You're not going to do it overnight because if you do it overnight, some cases, again, it'll, pieces will crumble. Now, when it comes to the whole born Muslim factors, that's a tough one because, yeah, you, you live a life no different than Christians, right? You live a life where... You've got people who are in your in your in your life, your orbit, that are Muslim, but they don't behave Islamically, and they may, you know, make you lose spirit and faith because they're like, oh, look at all these people. They say they're Muslim, but they're all a bunch of chumps. It seems to me that they all that this religion really doesn't do its job. It doesn't. No, that's the person not doing the job. Islam is the guideline. It's up to us to follow the guidelines, right? So I'm not going to, like, people, we have to understand that people are going to come from broken families, 
messed up family culture, messed up family uh, political and cultural politics that are going to be disruptive to our Iman. That's going to make an, a, an easy avenue for shaitan to work on our nafs so that our desires, our, our, our negative desires and our, and our whims and lusts are opened up so that we can actually, you know, just feel good rather than actually feel whole instead. It's hard. It's hard to, I mean, I don't know what that's like because I haven't come from a place of, you know, abuse of the faith where spiritual abuse has happened, where that has disrupted, say, a born Muslim's life. But I know it's very real. And would you say there's a reason why a lot of the da'is, like perhaps in Britain or elsewhere, tend to be reverts as opposed to born Muslims? Do you think they appreciate the faith more? Well, they, they do, do. They do. I think also in, say, like UK, you've got a history of Islam for the last 200 years, right? Um, and some of, the, some of the first converts, of course, came about in the Victorian era, you know, Muhammad Marmaduke Pickthall, um, Lady Cobbled, I think, you know, she's the, uh, one of the first, you know, British Islanders to ever go on Hajj, that was, you know, as a native British Islander. Um, you know, so there's a, there's a lineage there, there's a, there's a tradition there, but I think there's also, you have beautiful scholarly, you know, folks that are in the UK, like, you know, uh, you know, Abdul, Abdul Hakim Murad, you know, out in Cambridge, who has done a very good job of establishing, uh, you know, Islamic learning and whatnot. I mean, there's, you've got all of stripes and types in England, of course. They're very passionate. They have a debate. They have a debate-based culture, Right. So their market of ideas is, is open. Whereas like, I think there's a, there's a sentiment within Canada that we are very like, Oh no, don't talk about religion and politics at the dinner table thereby. You know, you can't jump into that too much because you might upset somebody. Right. Um, so maybe that's why. And and also in Canada, we don't have a, again, that, a very strong lineage back to a convert group um, or Islam being here. Like Islam only came to Canada in 1851 by like a few people. Like there's a Scottish convert couple that moved to Canada. Then there was an American convert couple maybe about seven years later or whatever that, that also came to Canada. And then there was an African man as well that came to Canada. There wasn't much. I mean, the most, most of them is, Mostly the Muslims that came to Canada were from waves of immigration. You had the, the Levantine Arabs that came about 100 years So it looks like uh, Brother Chris has disconnected. Um. 
There we go. Yeah. Sorry about that. I don't know what happened. No worries. Um, and then in the Americas, you in America, you have it a little bit different. You had Islam come to America on you know through the slave situation, the chattel slavery, because a good ten to thirty percent of the Muslims that or the slaves that were brought to America were were Muslim from West Africa. So Islam has been in America for at least 400 years. And, and then it's, you know, it's grown up and revived itself. It revived itself through the nation of Islam, which has its, you know, problematic aspects. But then you had people like Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali come out of nation of Islam and follow, start following and practicing, you know, you know, recognized normative you know, Sunni Orthodox Islam, right? So, you know, uh, yeah, there's, there's da'is of all stripes and types. It just, I think in Canada, we're just so spread apart. Uh, out in Calgary, it's, it's not like we're in the, the GTA area. Like, it's, it's not the GTA. You have a lot of communities that are super close together, way more population. You have half the population in Canada you know, in the eastern part of Canada. So the thing is, it's like you just got, it's just a numbers game. And the, the, the models for Islam, uh, the models for Islam are few and far between in Canada, where it's mainly coming from, and, you know, here we are, here's me as a European convert to Islam, that, uh, you know, my models are technically people who are of immigrant background. It doesn't mean that that's bad, but that's a little more difficult for some people to get around mentally. Some people just, they don't vibe with it, and we have to do what we can to try to reach out beyond the whole cultural paradigm to explain Islam in a way that makes it palatable. Um, whereas like in, in the States, most of the converts to Islam are actually black African Americans. And why is that? They already have a community that is heavily established, right? Uh, Zaid, we can't, we can't hear you, Zaid. Okay. You can hear me now? Yeah. Would you say that, um, the... The issue with the Dawah in Canada is just the population, or would you say there's a lack of desire in the Muslim community to give Dawah? I think we're a little bit scared right now. We have had our community attacked in three significantly heinous ways ever since 2017. So we're not all that happy to go out and do Dawah. Um, COVID-19 didn't help as much. And, you know, again, sentiments in can like my wife just came back from the UK. She just said, like, you know, I'm wearing the hijab in the UK and people treat me with way more respect. Uh, whereas she said, sadly, in Canada, the average person who sees me and looks at me, you know, has more of an edge or a kind of a sneer. And so the thing is, it's like, you know, when we as Muslims look visibly Muslim, you know, it is harder for us to 
explain things to the average Canadian, uh, white European heritage Canadian, um, which is unfortunately the case, the source of this anti-Islamic bigotry. Andre Bissonnette, <clears throat> the fellow who did the Islam, uh, the Islamic Mosque of Ottawa, or whatever, um, and then you know, then there's the guy who you know who handled things, who murdered people in London. So the thing is, they're all from my my home. They're from my tribe, and the, most of the people in my tribe are the the ones who are the most ignorant about Islam. And not to say ignorant in the, in the negative sense, but like you tr people are truly, they don't know. And what's, I think there's an angle within our dawah that needs to change is that a lot of da'is, I feel they come out wanting people to embrace Islam. They need to get over that. It's not up to you if they embrace Islam. I would say it's better for us to be more concerned with just sharing the message and educating people and leaving it up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Because when we don't apply the pressure, it's like, you know, when this makes so much sense and your life would be better, and da, 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 da. no, I think we just talk about Islam and how it, uh, it is beneficial for our lives, how it's compatible with things in Canada and Canadian values and leave it at that and say, hey, you probably didn't know this. You probably didn't know that. And just leave it casual, cool, and calm. It's when we start acting like victims and playing a victim mentality. And, and uh, you know, when we do that to our, in our dawah, um, it doesn't help. It doesn't help. What would you say... What what minimum message is needed for people in Canada, for example, to, uh, to appreciate Islam? I don't need them to appreciate Islam. I need them to understand Islam. That's it. Now, for them to appreciate Islam, that's an internal thing. They need to think about it and marinate on it and see where it does make sense for them. But all I want them to understand is that Islam is a religion that just no, like, like many others, but the unique thing is that our religion is a religion of commitment. So the thing is, I'm my life. I'm committed to serving God, and therefore I have obligations to my family, to my neighbors, to the environment, uh, to all these kinds of things. All these things that would be technically under the Sharia, and I would also want those people to understand that, like, you know, you, you keep, they keep worrying about words and things like Sharia when they need to understand that, like, okay, the Hadood laws for punishment in Sharia uh, are very, are fractional. You know, if you, you know, they're probably like less than 0.1% of what Sharia is. You know, Sharia is how do I treat my neighbor? How do I feed my family? How do I govern myself? How, you know, Basic stuff, I mean, it, it covers everyday life, but, you know, the whole idea of people, again, worrying about oppression of women. We just need to explain to them, like, look, women had inheritance rights before European women did. Look at that. You know, explaining to the thing the things that that just weren't there, that they don't understand or know historically, I think it's a big just knowledge gap. It's like, 
unfortunately, the things that we're not always going to be successful as a society because when the government of, say, Alberta or Saskatchewan or whatever picks a, a curriculum of teaching, you know, they're not necessarily going to go, okay, we need to teach everybody about Islam. That would be lovely, but it's not going to happen. You know, I think people need to learn about Islam from a, a almost like a social studies type perspective. That's the gap of knowledge that they're missing in their minds. Because when you actually learn it from that perspective, you kind of go, huh, oh, okay. Just like I had to learn about communism and capitalism and all these other things in, 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 in your high and high school. You know, why not learn about religions as well? So that I have a full understanding or a basic understanding of how people live. Right? Because those are things that, that actually full inform people's lives. In Canada, what do you think are the uh, best avenues to get the message across? Would it be street dawah, social media, books, debates, presence? You, you, have to, you have to be everywhere as best you can. Go to where the people are. Yes, do street dawah, but maybe be less hepped up on handing out pamphlets. Yeah, have some pamphlets, have some literature there. But you should be just there to have conversations. It uh, lagged there. Did you guys get that? Yeah, uh, I was able to make out what you were saying. Okay, good. Um, you know, and being on social media does help for sure. But again, social media is dangerous. Like, in a sense, when you have, we're our own worst enemies. And I was just dealing with this last night on Facebook. Okay. Somebody posted and they requested, hey, where can I get a halal turkey for Thanksgiving? And so somebody piped in to this person's comment and said, hey, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be celebrating Thanksgiving. And then it got into a whole diatribe about, you know, Thanksgiving is a kufar religious practice. Da, 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 da. And it's like, okay. So I advised the brother who made the comment. I advised him privately. I said, hey, when the sister asked this question, you should have maybe just left it and, and sent, said on her comment, you know, I've privately advised the sister. The brother, when I privately advised him, he said, well, no, it's haram for me to talk to her privately. And then why are you even talking to her in general on Facebook? Why are you? Well, it's the whole, you know, for in, in joining good and forbidding evil thing kind of thing. And it's like, this guy is never going to get it. Here he is, this brother, this loving brother. He's trying to give Nasiha, but he's giving Nasiha to another Muslim about Thanksgiving. When in fact, he needs to not advise that person publicly because there's a humiliation factor. That should have been an advisement in private. And the other thing is, it's like, does he also really understand that, you know, in some ways, you know, celebration of Thanksgiving is not as problematic as he might think? I get it. There are going to be people within our community that are going to go, whoa, that is a kufar holiday. But there are other ulama in our lives here in North America that will say, listen, this is actually has nothing to do 
with any religious practices, people just gather around a table and have a meal. There's no kind of what, what, what these people are, are doing on social media by being so hard with the Dean, they're making it seem freaking impossible for uh, uh, when, even when they're advising another Muslim, another co-religionist, uh, a, a non-Muslim may see that and go like, ah, geez, forget about Islam. I ain't going to do this. It's too hard. Right? And, it, and then the brother can come back at me and say, well, you, you are watering down the religion. No, no, no. I'm not trying to water it down. My advice would be, okay, if you come from a, a, a life or a family where Thanksgiving is not a, a normative tradition, maybe don't start it up. But for me, it's a different matter. Thanksgiving is normative. It has no religious connotation for me. But the thing is, you know what? My mom likes Thanksgiving. And, you know, a part of that is having some filial piety and also that Salat al-Rahim, that connection with my non-Muslim family to keep, like, I'm obliged. Islam obliges me to still be good with my non-Muslim family. So the thing is, is like the moment you start bringing up halal haram and you don't talk about nuances, it shows the average person that this religion is not a religion of ease, when in fact it is. That's the, that's the kicker. That's the kicker. I'm not going to recommend to you guys that you guys go out and buy a halal turkey and start up having Thanksgiving. No, no, no. But when people talk like that on social media, without any broad knowledge what's going to happen is that they're going to really disrupt the dawah in this part of the world they're really going to disrupt the dawah and they will really make it hard for people like me to actually be effective and make it hard for people like you guys who just want to go out and maybe do dawah and share with people but then you know you know, you don't need to get that specific. That's a question and something that needs people need to deal with with a sheikh involved. You know, that's the problem. I think we shoot ourselves in the foot by being too zealot, you know, zealous and flippant with our language and when we're online and we're too quick to advise into the here's the problem. We get two we have two kinds of People who love to advise. There's the people who are irrationally conservative. And then there are the people who are predatorily liberal. Our religion is a religion of the middle. The middle path. Aim for the middle path. And this is another further problem in our dawah. Is that again, when we have, and I get it, people who have immigrated to Canada from Muslim countries. Those Muslim countries were colonized by the British, by the French, and what have you. And often those people come with the mentality, oh, the West's ideology is totally antithetical to Islam. Hold the phone. No. Is Islam and the West and Western mentalities actually are quite compatible. Yes, there are some modern things that we could do without. For sure. But when they say that Islam versus the West and keep it at this kind of East versus West dialectic, again, what they're communicating to people like me and people from my tribe is that Islam is too hard. You shouldn't even bother. And we hate your guts because you're the white man. 
And that's not fair. Islam is a religion of redemption. And if anybody on this earth wants to become a Muslim, don't make it hard for them by showing incorrect understanding. If you have a private understanding of Islam that makes it a little bit more strict, you know what? Do what you can to uphold that. But if you're so loud with it, you're going to actually prevent. You're going to be gatekeeping people from coming into the religion. That's my biggest concern. So the, this question uh, kind of touches on, on what you just mentioned. It's a bit multifaceted. Um, so essentially, what changes do you think we need to make in our approach to Dawah, in our approach to interacting with um, new Muslims or even non-Muslims in Canadian society at large, such that we make our masajid, our communities more revert-friendly, Dawah-friendly? Perhaps are, are there changes, for example, like not bringing in sectarian conflicts or abstract theological issues, um, cultural aspects? So what are, what are the changes you think are the most important and critical to making our communities in Masajid more da'wah-friendly, more appealing to people? Like, appealing in the sense where it's not tainted with all our egotistic problems or cultural problems. I think that can be um, removed from the equation in our Masajid as Canadian Muslim societies grow. And this is no slight to immigrant communities that have established the Masajid because without the Masajid, I wouldn't be a Muslim. Without the current Masajids here in Calgary, I wouldn't be a Muslim. You know what I mean? It was Allah's decree that so many beautiful people came to Calgary and established Islam, that their families moved here, and then I was able to meet them. But we know that they moved here for the sake of economic opportunity. They really didn't move here for the sake of Dawah. We know that. Unfortunately, as a side effect of being human, our nafs gets in the way. Politics can disrupt things. But I think what going forward can happen is that, you know, as we have more second and third and onward generations of born Canadian Muslims from every kind of ethnic background, really at the end of the day, the back home politics, the, uh, you know, the politics that come from different, you know, schools of thought will eventually kind of dampen themselves. And you're just going to have people that will, how would you say, really just live Islam, you know, to the best of their ability. They're going to have a little bit of a cultural flavor going on in their home life. And that may be present in the Masajid, maybe by the people who maybe consistently frequent that misogyny. And immigration is not going to stop in Canada anytime soon, and that's fine. But youth, I'd say yourselves and anybody who's in their 20s and 30s, you know, they're gradually now the ones who are managing and maintaining our misogyny. And I, I'm very positive and hopeful. I see a lot of beautiful things happening in our communities. I see it happening in Calgary. I th I think there's a lot of beautiful development uh, happening. And that template really just comes with age. Communities do better as they just straight up mature. You know, that's all it is. Uh, when communities are new and fighting for their spot 
in the mosaic of the country that they're in, that's when things kind of, yeah, there's going to be a bumpy ride. But, you know, I look at it and I go, like, you guys are my brethren. And there's people running the mosques here in Calgary now that, you know, are, you know, are professional, ethical, wonderful people that are first and second generation Canadians. And they may be Lebanese, they may be Pakistani, they may be Indian, they may be African. But they're Canadian as well. They're just as Canadian as I am. And they're upholding Islam and ethics and all those kinds of beautiful values right now. It's just, we sometimes, when we see the negative, we like to focus on the negative. You know, I, I think uh, as long as we're aware of it and we, can be ha and we can also have frank discussions. And again, if you see somebody acting out of, out of place... What's the biggest thing that we can do is that we give the nasiha in private to that person. We don't do it over social media and we don't backbite them over social media. We don't, um, you know, confront them violently or, or, or abusively in any manner in person. And we just say, hey, I noticed this about what was going on. I have a concern. And, and, and just be frank with the person. But also, you know, do what you can. Maybe bring, you know, bring things to lighten the atmosphere, lighten the mood if there's truly something egregious happening. But, I mean, I'm thankful. I think people have their heads on straight and, you know, they know how to deal with each other. I think, you know, for the most part, um, we're just, I think, I think what's the problem with Canadian Dawah right now is, again, I think we're a little bit afraid of getting out there because of, you know, COVID has been in our way and also we've had a lot of violence visited upon our community and we need to get over that as best we can. And, and also we can't necessarily, like I love what the NCCM does, but also I will critique the NCCM and the fact that we can't just rely on pushing our politicians to write laws to save us from the big bad boogeyman. We need to actually go out and be active sharers of the dean and actually try to create bridges of communication with people like when we have an open house for our misajid which are great we're not getting the people who are the islamophobes we'll never get them right and in this it's, 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 i think it also parallels the dawa at the time of prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam he had family members that totally outright rejected islam and then he had family members that supported him like abu talib that didn't accept islam but it still was supportive and then he had family members who and people around him who embraced we're going to have that around us until the end of time we're going to have the abu lahabs and abu jahls we're going to have the abu Abu Talibs in our lives, and then we're going to have the people who, uh, you know, that we can communicate with, and then they'll go, yes, this is, this is for me, and I would like to be a part of that. And a, being a part of that is, is often, you know, we know it's always due to Allah, but the thing is, our part in that is having the best character possible. You know, the uh, best Islamic character possible. And, and upholding that in every aspect of our lives. 
you touched you touched on this before, but what do you think about the intellectual dawah scene? So how much role does intellectual argumentation play? It doesn't do for it doesn't do it for me. I think that's like I I mean I'm gonna spout off a percentage, but that's like maybe five percent of the population. Who cares? Right? People care about interactions, people care about how they're treated. People who are up in their minds about intellectualizing the dawah, sure, great. Have fun with that. I'm not in the mood to be debating with people. That's not my kind of life. I'm in the mood to have conversations and listen to people. That's what I'm for. And I think that's a majority of humans. Honestly, I think that's a majority of humans. So do you have any stories you want to mention that have any lessons for us? I would say like maybe not lessons, but I think some passing some information on is like, so you guys asked about my, my, my embrace of Islam. Um, and that's cool. And the thing is it works for me because I've been Muslim for now almost 12 years. Um, going on to 13 years, actually, Alhamdulillah. But I would say within our community, we need to stop fetishizing some stuff. So often, here's some things that happen. When somebody embraces Islam, we as Muslims in our community, we vicariously live through that moment when somebody embraces Islam and we treat it as some sort of event and not as a process. We fetishize it and we go, oh, look at that. It's such an iman boost. Yes, that's a great iman boost for you. But it's like us, as if we like are craving a donut and we eat the donut to satisfy this sweet tooth that we have. And then after that, oh, that was great. And then we walk away and we're not supportive. We're just there as a, as a spectator. I would actually please, like if, if you're encouraging somebody to embrace Islam, you better be along the ride. You better be ride or die with that person in their life. The other thing is that I really am not a fan of people doing their embrace of Islam when they're at a, mis a masjid and then everybody throws up their phone and they record it. That's shameful because the thing is, people have a right to their privacy. Yes, they're doing a public shahada in the house of Allah or wherever they're doing it. But the thing is, then the thing is, we then take those shahadas and post it all over the internet to, again, consume as spectators. It's disgusting. We could be harming the person's bodily security. What if there's somebody in their life that doesn't want them to become a Muslim and they see that video on the internet? And then that causes them a huge problem. So I advise all masajid and all people who are doing dawahs and giving shahada. If, there's, if you're going to give shahada, designate only one person to be recording that shahada over a video or audio. And tell the others, if there is people witnessing it, witness it with your eyes and that's it. And be happy with that. Be content with that. You don't need to record it and consume it again and again. It's just, it's gross. Did the Sahaba have recording devices for that? No, they didn't. They were satisfied when they saw the shahadas in front of them.
let's try to act like the Sahaba. That, that, I mean, I sound so passionate about it. It frustrates me. It just because, I mean, again, people consume the, the shahadas of con, converts like candies in a dish. It's not, it's a personal thing for some people and we have to treat it with that kind of dignity. So do you think perhaps what's lacking somewhat in the Dawah scene is lack of authenticity, sincerity? Yeah. Um, perhaps it's just a numbers game, Shahada, Shahada, record, record a video and you don't care about what happens after? I would say that the people are sincere. Their Nia is good, but they're really not looking at then their modality. They look at what they're doing with that type of stuff and then going, what am, what is, what am I really up to here? There's a brother here. There's a brother here in Calgary who has had his Embrace of Islam story constantly republished by a particular Dawah YouTube channel on their website without his permission all the time. And it's just like, oh my God, are you serious? And so that's the thing. Again, Converts, and anybody who becomes a Muslim or is planning to, and you're hearing this, please take control of how you do your shahada. You control who is there, who is delivering it, and who you are going to have recording it. Because the thing is, it is not fair to you that your story then becomes this you know, it, it becomes exploitive. That's what I'm saying. And, and it does become a numbers game. Some people just look for it and go like, oh, that's another notch in the belt. Awesome. Do you think perhaps, um, so, so shifting to after um, some uh, reverts after their Shahada, do you think there's a barrier to these reverts uh, when met with common doubts and questions? There's a barrier to them asking imams or, or people in the masajid or asking even other Muslims. Like they shy away from that because they don't want to be seen in a certain way or as if they're questioning the faith. They're shy about it, I think. I think sometimes they think they can get it maybe if they've married into a family, um, that they think that they're going to get it all from there. Um and again, there are people who are just straight up, they want to be crypto Muslims. I don't, like, I get it. There are people that want to do that. However, that has its dangers because our religion is a religion of communalism. And I, I do my best to explain to new converts that, like, you look, you know, do what you can to learn on your own, but also start putting yourself in environments where you can learn and build yourself up in the community. I will help you with that. However, um, you you have to also take, I think the convert has to really understand that they have to take control of their, of their situation and not just lean on the misajit. The misajit is not going to save the day. They need to find people who are well-versed and knowledgeable about embracing Islam uh, and not to toot my own horn, but there are people in North America and the UK that are even far more better trained than I am to be dealing with this. I'm just happen to be the guy here in Calgary dealing with it as a local response. 
So wherever you are in Canada, you have to, or in the US, the UK or Australia or other parts of the world, you got to find somebody who, who has been through it so that you can get some sound advice and consistent and consistent sohba. You want to develop sohba with good people so that you do have a consistent basis to be with, uh, you know, and, and don't be afraid to develop a community or collectivize a community of converts. If black American Muslims can collectivize a community, if Arabs can collectivize a Muslim community, if Daisies can collectivize a Muslim community, well, what's preventing East Asian people embracing Islam or, or European people from, you know, when they embrace Islam, what's stopping us from collectivizing and creating a community for ourselves? Because when we're together, we'll feel safer and more comfortable. Right? And it doesn't mean we exclude others. No. But it just means like, okay, we kind of know the standard operating system here. Right. Yeah, so uh, now moving towards uh, wrapping things up. Mm. Um, what knowledge do you think new Muslims should seek? What should, there, what should be their number one focus um, after becoming Muslim up to maybe a few years um, on their journey? And alongside that, What's the number one thing you think has kept you steadfast all these years? Like when you have your low points, what's the one thing you turn to um, that you feel gives you that Iman boost and, and helps you stay firm? So I would say always a, a, a new Muslim has to always get their, get their Fadl Ayn going. And that means, again, learning about the pillars of Islam, the, the basics of the worship, learning about the pillars of Iman, the basics of faith, the six pillars of faith, understanding that every action you do is based on intention and that you need to also round that out with the idea that you want to be doing things with excellence, with Ihsan. Studying and dealing with just the basics on how to do those things in your life. Um, you know, and, and again, that can come from a lot of, there's a lot of, again, there's books out there that just fundamentally deal with that kind of stuff. Books like being Muslim, a practical guide. Um, the new Muslim guide, I think is another one of them. You know, there's, those are the things that you really need to focus in on. And I will encourage that down the road, maybe two or three, four years in, start learning a madhab a school of thought in Islam. And, and the idea would be to just kind of refine your knowledge. It's not to create a difference and say, oh, that guy's Hanafi and I'm Maliki. And da, 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 da. No, when you just follow a particular madhab, you're just going to actually start to refine your knowledge and have finer detail to your practices of Islam. Right? Because then, then you know where to go and how to do it. Right? And, and it depends on the community. If you're being raised up, if you're a new Muslim in your community, you're in a community that is mainly a particular school of thought, you know, under the umbrella of, you know, normative Sunni Islam, you know, maybe go, okay, yeah, a lot of people in my community are Shafi or, or Hanafi. I'll, I'll start learning one of those maybe.
that's a that's that third and fourth year stage. But in the first three years, please, 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 just stick to basics, 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 basics. Your bread and butter. That's all you need. Um, remind me of that again, there, Yahya. Sure. We we went over the like the basics of what a convert should do. And what was the other part of that question you had? Um, the one thing that has kept you steadfast all these steadfast. years. It's just belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. At the end of the day, I know that I, I don't have to go repent to a priest. I can repent with, with, with God. I can also cry of thankfulness and do sajda to the shukr with, with Allah. You know? And, and do that kind of thing. It's so basic and authentic i don't have to stand in front of a stone statue go to a place all the world is a mess is a masjid it's just that allah i knowing that allah is is there and is the creator of all i don't know it just it just rings so true and resonates me with me that like that's that's the only thing that i need to rely on is just to have tawakkul to have that sincerity with Allah and 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 also just go like man my commitment really is what I'm after a good good end God willing you know be committed to the things that he requires of us and you'll have a good end and put your 100% best effort into things and that's what always just keeps me fired up and and faithful Okay, and the very final question, very last question. Um, what's one message you would give to upcoming Muslims who want to be involved in Dawah in Canada and one message you would give to Canadians who perhaps have a bit of a negative perception towards Muslims, Arabs, people from that background? So to the new Da'is, I mean, please, be, you of course, get your requisite knowledge under your belt. Be... Uh, a, a good student of knowledge and learn those basics. And then if you need to specialize in a particular form of da'wah, whether you're going to be the guy who likes to talk to atheists or the gal who likes to talk to Christians, or maybe you talk to the SB, SBNR type, type folks, or maybe you're going to specialize in talking to East Asian Muslims that come from a Chinese Taoist or or a Japanese Shinto background. You're like, you know what I mean? Like if, if, if there's something that aligns with you, for me, I'm better with spiritual but not religious people. And I'm good with, with you, know, the, you know, the Caucasian Canadian. But the young Da'is who are from all different groups, arm in talking to any I'll start again um, there's no harm for any da'i to to go out there and start talking to him just again have know your basics about Islam and and also have a, a good command of whatever language you need to communicate in and maybe you know what maybe us maybe as da'is maybe also internal da'wah is a big thing we need to do da'wah to our cousins and uncles and aunts maybe who may be off kilter a little and we need to we need to also start with that 
as well. People within our own family groups that need that boost and to be shown, hey, this is all good, you know, Islam. And then for the non-Muslim Canadians, and especially to the European Canadians, I'm going to be frank and saying like, look, we have, you have a responsibility. Stop burying your heads in the sand about Islam. Stop taking everything you know about Islam from media. Please come and learn about Islam from Muslims. We are the ones who live it, practice it, and breathe it every day. And we are not expecting you to accept our religion. I don't need you to accept Islam. I don't care if you do. I need you to understand it so that you can be at least an informed individual and then by that information, you will help prevent harm in our society. Not just my community, but our society. It helps us understand that bigotry is not needed. And bigotry can come out of just casual ignorance, just not knowing. How many times have I been casually ignorant about a topic because of just being blasé about it. And everybody seems to care about Islam and what Muslims are going to do. Well, if you care so much, come and learn from us. If you run an organization, please call up your local masajid and get your, the best person they can provide to do a one-and-a-half-hour presentation about Islam for your group, for your community group, so that you're just aware and you're form, informed. That's it. That's all we would like. Oh, you're muted, my man. Uh, Brother Chris, thanks a lot for joining us on this episode. It was a real pleasure hosting you. And, Thank uh, you. We ask Allah to continue to bless your work and your efforts and to keep us all firm on the deen. And we ask Allah to accept this from all of us. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik, nashhadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thanks, guys.